You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. So this is week seven um, in our uh, study, in our time through the Gospel of Mark, uh, where we've entitled it, Seeing, Believing, and Following the Messiah. Uh, So we've given ourselves to the Gospel of Mark. We don't know where we're going to end up. We don't know when this series is going to be done. Um, it's just, just is how we roll here at the Axis. Uh, but I do know that every Sunday our hope is for you to see, believe, and follow Jesus more closely, with more sincerity, with more intentionality. Uh, this morning from this passage, I get to tell you um, about true and lasting hope that will never, ever disappoint you. I mean, there's, there's nothing in the world that offers us hope like what we find in and from God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Lord, the Messiah. And I thank God that I have the privilege of pointing to the true hope with you today. It's an honor to open God's Word and point you and guide you to Jesus because it's there that you will see hope. It's there that you'll see yourself for who you really are. And it's exactly there where I hope to leave you today looking at Jesus in the presence of Jesus, looking at him, experiencing him, and hearing truth from him today. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he calls his disciples. He teaches in the different synagogues. So this is at the very front end of his ministry. He preaches, and he kind of takes his disciples in and around 50 different synagogues in the Middle East, and he heals the sick, and he frees those who have been possessed and controlled by the demons and the powers of the darkness. His fame and reputation spreads very quickly, far and wide, throughout all the Middle East as he goes synagogue to synagogue with his disciples. And as he goes, he teaches, he preaches of his new heavenly kingdom that's come. He heals, he delivers demons from people, freeing them, sending them away. And we looked at this last week when we saw the leper uh, being healed, uh, even last week experiencing that physical healing. And now we have our text for this morning in Mark chapter 2 in uh, verse 1. Our new adventure in chapter 2 begins. Here we go. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum, so he'd been traveling to the different synagogues, more than 50. After some days, it was reported, because word had spread, that he was at home. Most likely uh, the home of, of Simon and Andrew, right? Which is where he had left before he did this tour. So word got around that he was near, and people would come from everywhere once they found out where he was. And then verse 2, and many, understatement, but it's there, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, like no space. It could not be contained. There was no more room, not even at the door, like not even at the door could, was there room for another person. And he was preaching the word to them. He was preaching of the new kingdom, that the Messiah had come. And they came, and they came bringing him, carrying is the word, carrying to him a paralytic, someone that was paralyzed, lame, could not walk. And he was carried by four men. That's an interesting detail, pointing out the size of the person. So this wasn't a child. This is someone that had been paralyzed for some time now. It was a grown man. And when they couldn't get near him, Right? They're desperate. They probably tried a number of ways to get in and near him. But it was just such a mass of people. They could not get near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof. 
And there's actually a Greek term for removed, which is actually to unroof. It's interesting. I didn't know there was a term for that. You know, it's like, when are you going to put a new roof on? We don't say, when are you going to unroof your house to put new shingles on? We don't have that word. They do in the Greek. It's interesting. And so they unroofed the roof. Very significant act of desperation. They removed the roof that was strategically above Jesus. And when they had made an opening... Right? This is to, uh, the word is to dig and tear, okay? To break loose. They let down the bed, not just the man, but the actual bed with the man on which the paralytic lay. So they had a friend, a hopeless friend, suffering from paralysis. And the four men, they had hope. They had hope that they could get near and close to Jesus. And they were trying their best to get close to him. But the crowd was in their way. There was no way to get close to Jesus. And they didn't go back home. They didn't let that difficulty stop them from getting their buddy to Jesus. Just a quick thought here. I know we've all got reasons we can come up with to stop caring uh, and praying and pulling for our friends who seem so hopelessly disconnected from God and who want nothing to do with Jesus or the Christian church. Remove the ceiling if you have to. Uh, get very creative. Do whatever possible to get your friends to Jesus. Most buildings in Palestine during this time had flat roofs, and it was made of this clay and, and brush and straw that was reinforced by wooden beams, like holding it all. The crowd, not, not the crowd, not the door, not the roof for that matter, would stop these men. They were so desperate and determined to get their friend to Jesus. Now, wouldn't you agree with me that in order to lower a man laying flat through a hole in a roof, don't, don't you agree that it would take a sizable hole to do this without dropping your friend out of the bed, right? It would take a significant opening. These men knew that there was something about Jesus. They knew that it was worth a chance. It was worth a try. It was worth an effort. It was worth the work and maybe even the risk of getting in trouble for ruining someone's property. It was worth not walking away. It was worth not giving up so easily. They knew that they didn't have the power to help their friend or they would have done it themselves. But what they did is they believed that Jesus just might have the power to help their friend. So they opened the roof. They lowered the man down into the presence of Jesus. And verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, this is really interesting. When Jesus saw their faith, um, their, their belief, their confidence, their trust in him, he said to the paralytic, my dear friend, my dear one, my son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus sees just how much these men believe that he can help their friend, he tells the man, your sins are forgiven right then and right there. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, well, that's good, but he needs to walk. Like, that's kind of what we brought him here for. But what Jesus does is wonderful. And it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. He forgives the man's sins. I mean, this is perhaps the reason the men carried this man to the house. We don't know. It might have been to have his sins forgiven. 
Maybe it was to be forgiven and not necessarily healed physically. You see, back in these times, there were certain infirmities that did not allow you to be inside the temple. They couldn't get salvation as easily as those who were healthy and could walk, for instance. Those who were lame, those who were blind, those who were lepers, right? They couldn't enter as freely into the temple. So what if it was really salvation that they brought this man? But here's the thing about the Jesus. I love this in Luke 5, 31. Those who are well, he says, have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call the sick, the sinner, to repentance. So Jesus forgives this man away from the temple. He didn't do this in the temple. Without the man's required religious acts, he simply forgives his sins. Now, these are religious leaders that are in the text, and they study theology, and they understand certain doctrines. And in verse 6, we meet some of them. It says, now some of the experts in the law, these scribes, were sitting right there, and they were pondering, reasoning through this uh, carefully. They were questioning. They were questioning these things in their hearts, right? This term in the Greek means out of disapproval, they're dialoguing within. So they're, consider- they're like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't agree, but where's he wrong? Like, how, what's my argument going to be here? And within their inner self, right? So they're not processing these things out loud. They're, hmm. So here's Jesus, he's teaching. And you've got the religious leaders that are sitting and they're listening. And as we're going to see, these leaders... And, uh, and, and others, I'm sure, from the area, not just the leaders, they've gathered into this home to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees were these real uptight religious people. They placed so much stress on the compliance, strict compliance to the law, minuscule detailed regulations that they often made up themselves and added over the years to see that they never get to the point where they're actually sinning. And so, but they made those their own laws. And so the teachers of the law, these scribes, were those who spent their whole life reviewing and teaching these mostly man-made rules to other people. They were the professional class of lawyers and teachers who belonged to the Pharisaic party. Now think along here with me. These leaders don't just happen to show up in this home to see Jesus. The temple maybe, but not this home. And so the way that I see this as we get, as we make our way through chapter 2 and onward towards the cross, I see this as a potential setup to catch Jesus. I believe they're investigating Jesus to see how this Jesus guy is going to handle something like this. And so these curious ones, they lean in, they listen, they learn. Who, who knows their motive, really? But they're not disappointed. Jesus, God in the flesh, God Almighty, does not disappoint. Let's see what he does. Here's what, they're, here's what they're questioning. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? This is what they're thinking to themselves. That's great theology, by the way. These guys nailed it. This is very accurate. Only God can forgive sins. A prophet or a priest could forgive sins only in the name of God, recognizing his power and usually with a sacrifice. But the crest question here was whether Jesus had this prophetic authority to do so. And if not, he was falsely claiming to act on behalf of God. He was making himself out to be a fraud. He wasn't actually God. 
But notice that Jesus claims, he, he claims the higher authority of the Son of Man in verse, um, in, uh, verse 8, I believe, who is associated with God's final judgment on mankind with uh, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, he talks about him being the Son of Man. So Jesus is understanding this, and he's perceiving this, and immediately perceiving in his spirit, so they're thinking to themselves, and Jesus is knowing their thoughts because he's the most brilliant, perceptive, knowledgeable person ever. And he knew that they were questioning, they were dialoguing within. And he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? I mean, which is easier? Which is the least amount of trouble to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, stand up, like rise and, and pick up, take up your bed, grab your mattress and walk away. Which is easier, to say that you're forgiven or to heal you physically? So authority as Jesus and preacher is remarkable. They see it. His authority over sickness is remarkable. His authority over demons, it's already been seen. It's remarkable. But his power over sin, both are difficult, right, to heal somebody of being paralyzed and to forgive sins. Wouldn't you say? It's difficult. Neither would be easy. It's much more difficult to forgive sins than heal somebody, Jesus says. But to you, it seems as if it's more difficult to heal a paralyzed person. So for your sake, I'll prove my power over sickness and sin by telling this man to get up and walk. He says this in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man, the Son of Man, that you might know that I am of God from God and I am in the flesh incarnate God Almighty. So that you might know that I am the Son of Man and that I have authority on earth to forgive sin, which is our greatest need. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, so that you might know, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he stood up. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed. They were astonished. What on earth? And they were glorifying, praising God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And what this does is this miracle validates the power of Jesus to forgive sins. So he accomplishes both things. Now imagine what this would be like to experience, to, to witness this. This man who you've probably seen on the side of the road begging and needy. He can't walk. And he stands up and he walks out a forgiven man. I mean, that is a complete transformation physically, spiritually. Friend, this is exactly what the gospel does as the Spirit of God changes us. It gives us life. It makes us alive in Christ. It transplants our heart of stone with the heart of flesh that begins to beat for the glory of God above all else. It makes us born again, reborn. It makes all things new within us, within our thinking, within our acting, within our loving, and within our living. I mean, this house is packed with people and, and a paralytic with several friends. They can't get their buddy to Jesus. And so they do the somewhat logical but ridiculous thing, and they pull apart this roof. They lower their buddy in the presence of Jesus. And on account of their faith, Jesus heals the paralytic, and he tells them, that he's forgiven, and to pick up his bed and go home. Friend, this is how Jesus handles any soul that comes to him. In John 6, 37, he says, whoever, that's you, that's anybody, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I'll never dismiss. I will never send away. 
So what does this story tell you about you? Where do you see yourself in the story? What does this tell you about me? What does this tell us about Jesus? Who are we here in this story? There's several different characters that we can associate with. Many of us can often find ourselves in the audience of the, the skeptical, unbelieving, and proud religious, can't we? You know, we're often near the Messiah, particularly here at the Axis, so we talk so much about him. But we're not sure if it's all really, really true. Perhaps you're a good person. Perhaps you're good at being good. Maybe you're good at following the rules and even enforcing them like these scribes, kind of feeling pride when others can't follow them in obedience really to the level that you can. Perhaps you have all your theological answers neatly organized and aligned, thinking, well, all would be better if people thought more like me. You've got grace in a box. You've got Jesus and the love of God systematized. You've got it down to a theological science. Friend, could you perhaps have what Paul warned Timothy of in 2 Timothy 3, of having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth? My friend, if this is you, I encourage you to continue to press in and lean in, to gather and to listen. And my hope is that God would surprise you at what you learn about Jesus and what you learn also about yourself. And I encourage you to pray for humility, all of us, for self-awareness, for soul awareness, for a knowledge of the truth and full obedience to that knowledge. And I would love for us all to leave one of these days. And because of what God does in our hearts as we hear the word preached, you no longer have a category for what you experience in Christ. And you leave saying the same things these people did in amazement. We never saw anything like this. I would love this for you. Now also, some of us are the unforgiven man who happens to be paralyzed. He's not just the paralyzed man, he's the unforgiven man. Let's not focus on the physical here. Let's focus on his, his spiritual need for a minute. After all, this is what Jesus is most concerned with, and the same is true for you today. You see, friend, sin has left you in a place where you can't help yourself. You're paralyzed, if you will. You can't help but sin. None of us can. You can't help get away from your sin and its consequences. You can't heal yourself. You can never be good enough to heal your brokenness and forgive your sins. You're on the mat. You need forgiveness. You need Jesus. And you must experience him. You just have to. And the Bible teaches us that, that your rebellion and my rebellion before God and through our sins, that they have eternal consequences. The Bible teaches that outside of God's activity in our life by grace, through faith in Christ, all of us, every one of us, are going to hell. That's the truth of Scripture. But the gospel is that Jesus came into the world to save you from yourself and from your sin. To deliver you from the consequences that your sin has brought upon yourself. Friend, you must be saved. But the good news is that Jesus came and he suffered for you. It says this in 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous one, Jesus, for the unrighteous, us. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Friend, this is your greatest need. And we see it here in the text. They brought their friend to Jesus. Only Jesus can bring us to the Father. We read about this um, in one of the children's verses this morning. 
right? John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father except through me. This is your greatest need, to be brought to God through Christ. Have you experienced this? How do you experience this? Well, first, you must, just like this man and his friends, you've got to be aware of your need. They came to Jesus because their friend had a need. Do you see your need? Not one single person has ever become a Christian without first knowing their need. The self-satisfied person, the person who feels like everything's all right, the person that feels like there's really nothing needed, he's fine. He's got no problem. There's no need. He's not aware of failure. Why should he come to Jesus? What's the point? He sees no purpose in doing so because he has no problem, at least that he's, he's aware of. My prayer for you is that you see your need, your true need, and that you would come to Jesus to have him help you meet your need and heal your illness and satisfy your longings and fix your main problem. My hope for you is that you would no longer pretend that you don't need the Savior's help, but that you would humble yourself, that you would humble your heart before him. Which leads to the second thing of how we receive this is you, you, you must not only know your need, but you must go to Jesus specifically, Jesus alone, to meet your need, right? It's not Jesus and your activity, that's moralism or legalism, it's twin. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. You've got a sin problem, and that's the problem of all your problems. You must be forgiven of your sins. The heart of all your problems is a problem with your heart. And you must be forgiven to have that dealt with. You believe Jesus today. You trust him and you trust in his work for you as you. And you will be forgiven right then, right there. Just like the man in the story. But you see, our greatest problem here is sin. Our rebellion before God of doing things in our own way. Sin is not being or doing what God requires. It's our lack of faith in Jesus. It's our lack of trust in his goodness. But when we call out to Jesus, when we seek his help, when we seek his deliverance, just like here in the text, he responds. He can be trusted to handle what our needs are, and we can be forgiven. He took care of our sins through his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross as us, and through his powerful resurrection from death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that it was for our sake that God made Jesus to be sin so that in Christ Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be forgiven, become good enough, the righteous requirement being met. You may be only and mainly aware of your physical needs this morning. Your paralyzed body, so to speak. And we've all got things that we would love to see changed in our life. Psychologically, socially. Personally, emotionally, familially, is that a word? You may be only aware of this paralyzed body. And to hear talk of forgiveness of sins, it seems so far away. It seems so irrelevant. It's like the issue is the legs. It's the spine. Why are you talking about sins? And you, you, might, you might be convinced that your main problem and need is something very, very different. If Jesus, though, if he merely this, healed this man physically only to allow him to walk and jump for a few years before he died, what good does that help the man with? How did he serve the man? How helpful was that? And what's the point if I become an Olympian sprinter only to run straight to hell when I die? What then? I need something more than the ability to walk. I need to be forgiven. I need life, not just legs. I need life more abundantly. 
You see, Jesus, when, when Jesus forgave this man's sins, whether he walked or not for a few years, he could take heart. He could be encouraged. His sins were forgiven. My son, your sins are forgiven. You might only be interested in your legs, your spine. God is interested in your heart. But he can also take care of your legs too, if he so desires. If you come to Jesus to walk, you'll still die. But if you come to Jesus for life, you'll outlive death forever. And you might leave walking, leaping, jumping, and praising God. Regardless of your legs, though, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be taken care of. We'll sort through all the other stuff later. You seek first Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, and his righteousness. We all want so many other things, and we all have so many other needs, but we'll never get them until we get Christ first. You seek Jesus Christ first, the one, the only, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You seek him. You get to him. Care less about your legs. Care more about your heart. You look at the Son of Man. You look at the Son of God, and you believe. And all this other stuff begins to make sense. They bring the man to Jesus for his legs, and Jesus forgives his sins. Who on earth is talking about sins in this room? They're talking about his spine. They're talking about his legs. They're talking about his problem. This is his problem, Jesus. But Jesus knows of the greater. He knows of the greatest problem that this man on this bed had. He was an unforgiven sinner, and he was guilty before God. Friend, have you ever come to the place in your life where the thing that, that you thought needed to be changed more than anything else, where you see that as a gift? Hold on. That it was actually that thing that you would want changed that actually was used by the brilliant God of all creation to turn your heart towards Jesus so that you got before the face of Christ and lowered down before him where you ended up being restored in ways you never even knew you needed. Your paralyzed state gets you to the point where you're experiencing the nearness and presence of Jesus and you experience a healing like you never thought possible. God is this powerful and he is this good. Look at the death of his son and what good came out of it. We think we know what we need. We think we know our problem. We believe we've got it figured out. We know what needs to be done. We know what needs to happen. My friend, you need more than your legs fixed. Your heart must be healed. You must be forgiven of your sins. You must first be, be reconciled to God. And this is the doing of the Messiah. I need to walk. I need to be healed. And Jesus said, be of good cheer, son. Your sins are forgiven. Be aware of your true problem. And see Jesus as the satisfaction and the answer to this problem. I mean, all your troubles are ultimately due to our sin. And Jesus has come to deal with this sin. He's come to deal with our trouble. And we must all hear, my son, your sins are forgiven. And our trouble exists because our sins have separated us from God. Our relationship with God is more than complicated and complex. It's non-existent. And we're born this way. We're all born sinners by birth and through our own choice, our own actions. And through this sin, it has completely separated us from God. And there is no hope in and of ourselves, of us climbing any ladder, of doing any good things to erase all the bad that we have inherited through Adam, our first father, and through our own actions, through our own personal rebellion. 
This is the source of our trouble. This is where our despair comes from. It is our sin. And this is why our situation is the way that it is. Things are wrong. Things are broken because of sin. And the greatest need isn't the symptom that got us to Jesus, which is our legs maybe. The greatest need is that we be made right with God, that we will be reconciled with God. And this only comes through faith in the finished work of Jesus, the Messiah. This is the treasure that you're looking for. This is the satisfaction that you're looking for. This is life. Here is your happiness. My son, your sin is forgiven. There it is. That's what you're looking for. Your discontentment, which is a symptom, comes from being disconnected from God. That's the disease. And Jesus is the cure. And what he does is he restores you back into friendship with God. This is what you need. And when you have this, you can be crippled, you can be paralyzed, and still have happiness and hope. This man knew this. You know this because you have Jesus as your friend. You've got his Holy Spirit as your comforter, as your guide, who's present with you. You have this through peace with God, knowing that heaven is your eternal home. And finally, friends, many of us are the friends here in this story who help others experience the change of heart that we have, that they get by seeing Jesus. These friends were desperate, and they were determined. They wouldn't be put off. These guys would not be denied. No was not an answer. They weren't half-hearted. They were insistent. They were persistent. They were urgent. We cannot wait until the crowd thins out. We have to get this now. Friend, do you see and believe that your friends have a desperate need to be healed by Jesus? Or would it just be nice if it happened? Do you see it as a desperate need? Do you see and understand the root issue of your friend's problems? You're aware of your friend's problems. You're aware of your family's problems. But are you aware of their ultimate problem? If you don't see their true need of being reconciled to God and forgiven of their sin, you'll unintentionally end up doing great damage in trying to fix their sinful fruits and their sinful activities while never seeing the root issue resolved. At best, you convince them to become moralistic, therapeutic deists. At worst, you lead them into hell, believing that so long as they stay away from the really bad sins and do as you say, that they're all going to be all right in the end. And by doing so, you're making them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Neither of these options are acceptable for the healthy Christian. The Christian must be aware of their friends and family's true need. More than seeing particular sins stopped, you know the big ones, the less respectable ones. The church, we don't talk about the small sins. We tend to talk more about the big sins. You know the big sins that we don't really struggle with, that we can easily hate on because we don't sin in the same way as those do? But we need to see to it that our friends, that our children, that they see and meet Jesus. And we can trust Jesus and his spirit to change them. All we do is point and point and point and point and point to Jesus. That's your job. And it's when we don't do this that we're in trouble. It's when we think there's more to our job than pointing to Jesus. That's when we get in trouble. And I see this more and more today. It's so much easier and popular and catchier, if you will, these days to point out people's big sins. 
to point and point and point and point and point to their sin, to their rebellion, to their carelessness, to the things of God. And this produces guilt, shame, and fear in the sinner on the mat. They feel ashamed. Good job. This produces angst, anger, frustration, and judgment in those who are pointing to the sin, to those that are on the mat. Holding the mat, they're pointing at the legs. These men, they don't point to their friend's legs. They point it to Jesus. Don't miss that. They were not pointing at the man's obvious visual need and brokenness. They pointed at the one who could heal. Remember, it's not the fear of judgment that leads anyone to repentance. It's not the fear of the wrath of God that leads anyone to repentance. It's not the pointing out of my sexual dysfunction or my gender confusion that's going to lead me to repentance. It might run me off. It will not run me to Jesus. It's the kindness, Romans 2, 4, it's the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to repentance. It's talking about how kind Jesus is, how good he is, what he has done for us in our rebellion that leads us to repentance. It's not focusing on my rebellion. It's focusing on what he's done to deliver me from my rebellion. The same is true for your friends. They're sinners. They're great sinners. Indeed, just like you and just like me. And their true need is only taken care of when they see Jesus. When they see Jesus. Don't point to the problem. Don't point to where the way isn't. Point to the answer, the cure, and the way out. Point to him. Talk to him all the time. Talk about Jesus all the time to your friends. You know, it's interesting. In Isaiah, he, he, sees, Jesus, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, right? And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. We sing about that, right? And what does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me, for I am a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a land of unclean people who have unclean lips. Who told him that? Who pointed out that he was unclean and had unclean lips? He just saw the Lord high and lifted up. Wow, I'm not that. You talk about Jesus and what he's done, people will be drawn to him out of his mercy, his kindness, his hard work for them. On their, on their behalf, they're damned, they're going to hell, and he steps in. He stops their funeral, and he gets in the casket. He gives them life, and he suffers in their place. You talk about that. Don't talk necessarily all the time about what led to their death. Talk about what leads to their life. That leads to repentance. Don't get caught up in the symptoms. Get caught up in the disease and the cure. It's Jesus the Messiah. He's always interested in the main problem. He's always interested in the disease and the cure. He doesn't get caught up in the symptoms. Our society, our economics, our politics, our culture, we're all consumed with symptoms. Jesus is concerned with the cure. All of our friends... All of our friends' lives and our family's life will make sense when they see Jesus, but much confusion comes when they merely see their sin. And it may feel noble to point to sins. You might even be able to find some Bible verses to back it up here and there to justify your philosophy of shaming and ridiculing others who sin differently than you do. You can find Bible verses taken out of context to justify anything you want. Where do you think cults come from, right? But our goal must be to find verses that point our friends to Jesus Christ. And as they see Jesus, he will handle their fruit sins in his timing as he seems fit. 
That's not your job. Your job is to get your friends to Jesus. You lower them down into the roof, through the roof, you're not responsible for their healing of their legs or their heart. When you try to get involved, you screw things up. He can handle it. He knows how to address their heart and their sin much better than, than we know how to. And as we try to bring change, as we try to get people to stop sinning, it hardens their heart often, and their blood may be on our hands one day. What they need is to see that Jesus is the one who shed his own blood for them. And this will soften their hearts as the Spirit changes them. Don't get frustrated with your friend's sins. Get them to Jesus. Pray if they see Jesus. Be drawn to prayer and not more performance improvement or behavior modification of your friends. If they stop sinning outwardly to appease you, to get, get you off their back, you might feel better. You fix them. But they're confused, hurt, and more ashamed than ever before. Don't be satisfied with mere behavior modification for you or your friends. I mean, this is the philosophical approach that I have for us, even through our preaching ministry here at the Axis. I intentionally, as the lead pastor of this church, I intentionally make this not just my work, but the work of all those six men and anyone who will ever preach from this stage. I make it my goal to not get caught up in the weeds of cultural issues, politics, and particular sins during our time in our sermons at our gatherings. And this is much more difficult than you can imagine, and I'm not expecting you to agree with it. I'm not, I don't, it's okay if you disagree. See how that works? It's all right. My philosophy of preaching comes from this very passage. I mean, I think you could take this, if you just had these 12 verses, you could pretty much, that sums up the whole Bible almost, this story. And all its implications. And we could spend a year just on this one, this one passage. The weekly sermon is merely a rope. A simple rope to get you to see Jesus. That's it. It's to get you closer to Jesus. And then I leave you there. My sermon isn't to change you per se. It's to get you to the one who can change anything. From a thief on a cross to death. He can change it all. He changes everything. Each week, my belief is this, i got to help my people see Jesus. they just got to see Jesus. Because it's when you see Jesus, it's, you'll, be, you'll be aware of your neediness and sinfulness more so than if I tried to nitpick everybody here. I don't need to elaborate on how sad and sinful we are in our culture. I just need to, be, I need to tell you how to be happy, how to be forgiven. I, I try to just tear the roof open and lower you to Jesus and leave you there. That's a sermon. It's a roof remover. It's a rope. It's an unroofer, right? That's it. That's what we do. Your hope isn't my sermon or anyone else's sermon for that matter. If it is, it's not hope. You're getting tricked. It's in Jesus Christ. It's the Messiah. It's that or it's no hope at all. Now, Christian, here's how we keep this big picture of, our, of, of, of the situation and of our need and seeing Jesus as the means of meeting our greatest need. It's for us to never personally leave the presence of Jesus ourselves. In some ways, we pick up our mat and leave. In other ways, we stay right there at the feet of Jesus. We must remain before Jesus ourselves. We've got to see Jesus, hear Jesus, follow Jesus closely. Don't ever outgrow, outthink, or outhealth your need for lying before Jesus. And I know we can easily drift to being the proud religious. But we don't feel like we need to be before Jesus. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but not notice the log? The log, you've got a speck of dirt. He's got a speck of dirt. You've got a two-by-four, four-by-four plank. 
How do you notice his speck when there's a log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly how to help your friend. We can stay low before Jesus by seeking the way of humility, by pursuing God in the scriptures daily, by praying and seeking God through wisdom and direction, and by repenting early and often. Friend, this is what it's like to lay before Jesus on a mat. We never forget that we were paralyzed. And then it wasn't our doing that led to our walking. It was Jesus. It was his miracle that he did in us. We woke up. He's the one who brought us to life. Christian, has it been a while since you've experienced the joy and freedom of repentance? Not of someone else's sin. Not of praying for someone else. But what about your sin? When's the last time you've experienced the freedom, the freedom of repentance? The joy of lying before Jesus and not another idol. Of lying before Jesus and not your self-righteousness. Of lying before Jesus and not pointing out the fact that others aren't, of just getting before Jesus yourself, man, what a great opportunity we have today to repent. Why not? Let's turn to Jesus and discover in Christ what we thought could be found elsewhere. There's your freedom. Therein lies fun in the Christian life that you're looking for. Christian, your life is a rope. It's just a rope, but it's a significant rope. You can't change your friend. You can't change your families. We can't change anybody, but Jesus can. And the answer isn't in us trying to change others. The answer is living in such a way that others discover Jesus through our words and our actions. We're to use our words and actions to get people before Jesus, to see the real Jesus. You are the rope. Are you desperate to see others changed by Jesus? Are you desperate enough to see the roof removed? Do you have faith that God can change your friend and your family members? Do you have faith? Who is it that you're trusting God to save? Who is it that you have confidence that God can change? Who is it that you're believing God that he can change this person? And are you leading them to Jesus or just simply trying to get them to start living better? There's a difference. There's a difference. A word to dads here and future dads. Your job is to be the rope for your family. Your job is to get your family to Jesus. It's not about being the perfect dad. It's not about having the perfect dad Instagram. It's a rope. Just be a rope. That's it. It's in this. It's in trusting Jesus to help you, to help your family, to change you, to change your family. That is being a great dad. Being that kind of dad, you'll be praised and so missed at your funeral. You're not the savior. You're not the maintainer of your family. You're not holding it all, all together. Jesus is. Get your family to him. Are you a Christian this morning? Are you more concerned with your legs? Are you concerned with your heart? Have you been reborn? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you're a good person. That is not the question. Have you been regenerated from within by the power of the creator of all things? Have you been born again? Have you been saved? Friend, this is what Jesus is after. Jesus is what you need and Jesus is what you're looking for and nothing will give you satisfaction like Jesus. Have you ever been like this man face to face with Jesus? What is your eternal destiny? That's the question. And I hope you hear it loud and clear. When all else has failed, there's hope in Jesus Christ. These guys, their friend, they tried everything. Doctors helped. Medicine was tried. Theories were trusted in and all failed. And they heard about Jesus. Let's try him. All else has failed. He was paralyzed more then than ever before. Let's try Jesus. 
Friend, this is the gospel. There's hope for the hopeless and there's help for the helpless in Jesus Christ. If the worst person in all the world is in this very room today, there's hope for him or her. There's power in the gospel. This is what happens when we hear the gospel of Jesus and we look at Jesus. It's when we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. There's hope there. There's help there. And there's no limit to what Jesus can do. There's a limit to psychology. There's a limit to therapy. There's a limit to counseling. There's a limit to medicine. There is no such limit to Jesus. Ask the man who was paralyzed. He's walking and forgiven. Your marriage might look like this man on a mat, but with Jesus, there's hope and there's help. Your life might feel like that of this man on the mat, but with Jesus, there's hope and there's help. When your child or friend is drifting and they seem as lost as a ball in high weeds, with Jesus, there is hope and there is help. No one has ever sinned beyond the point where Jesus can't save them. No one. And the troubled family member and loved one that you're thinking about is not the exception, and neither are you. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. This can happen for you. And you might be here today, and your presence here at this very church is like a last chance effort to get help. And you've tried it all. You've been so crushed and disappointed, and you're thinking to yourself, nobody cares, nobody can help. It's pointless, it's hopeless. I'm just going to go in there. They're going to tell me to try harder and believe more. And I can't do it. You drug your hopeless self in here today. I'm so proud of you. You are fantastic. What faith it took for you to come in here feeling hopeless. And all those who were singing, great is this day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You drug yourself in here through despair. Friend, you can hear this. My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Just believe. Just look to Jesus. Hear this from Jesus today. It doesn't matter if Jesus is your last resort. He's not going to point out all that you've tried before you get to him to produce guilt. He's good enough to save you, even if he's your last resort, and he will hold you fast. Have you heard Jesus say this to you? My son, your sins are forgiven. My daughter, your sins are forgiven. Have you this hope? Have you heard this message from Jesus? Friend, he is not a waste of your time. He's not a waste of your thought. He's not a waste of your attendance and presence in his word. He's not a waste. You think deeply on him, and you will find joy that lasts forever, even if you don't stand up and begin to walk. Even if your situation in this life doesn't change, you will find joy that abides deeper than muscle and bone. For you will have a heart that beats eternally for God, with God, that will be with him forever and ever and ever. And you have the joy of pointing everyone else to that hope. When all else has failed, come on to Jesus. He's ready for such helpless, hopeless people. This is the work of Christ. He's interested in those who are sick and disqualified. Those who are weary and exhausted. Friend, you've got to come to Christ. Don't come to Christ and something else. Go to Jesus. Let's do that now through communion. Let's come to Christ this morning at his table. This is where our hope comes from. We're not celebrating our genius. We're not celebrating our goodness. 
We're celebrating the fact here and acknowledging that there was a man who lived perfectly as a son of man, son of God, the perfect God-man, Jesus, sent to earth by God out of love and kindness for us 2,000 years ago to live perfectly for us. He made himself a man. He created men and he made himself one in order to save us to the Father. And he did it by living perfect because not one of us can. And he died in our place to suffer the damning consequences of our own sin so that we can live forever with God, starting today, rolling throughout eternity. This is our hope through Christ, and this is why we share in this sacred meal. This is for Christians. And Christian, if this week, if this month, if this has just been the worst And you feel like, man, I need to wait a week. I can't take communion right now. One, I thank you for your respect. You've got more respect of what this meal means than those who jump up quickly to this table and think nothing about it. You know the significance of this moment. But if that's you, remind yourself, you're not approaching this table at any point based on your performance. Ever. You're coming up here because you're a failure. Because you can never perform good enough. So for those who feel so disqualified that you're going to push this week on this, be the first. Run to the table. This is the grace of God towards you. We remember the performance of Jesus through this time. For those who need prayer over anything, we've got several of our beloved staff members at the back of the room that would love to pray with you for anything, whether it be forgiveness of sins or to be able to walk again. And anything in between. We would love to pray. These are the gifts of God. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of faith that Christ has died for us. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again to get us. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of celebrating, of worshiping the performance of Jesus Christ. And may you remain with us always, even until the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, I invite you to come and take. Remembering Jesus and his performance, we've got servers on either side, and there's a self-serve station in the back. You'll take the bread, symbolic of the life of Christ, and dip it into the juice of the wine, symbolic of the death of Christ for you. This is the performance of Christ, and this becomes ours as we, by faith, believe him. You can come when you're ready. You are listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.